Let's go to the Lord of the Word before we go to the Word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come into this passage that, uh, that describes for us what happens when people refuse to be corrected by you, we ask you to give ears to hear what you have to say to us, and we ask you to give us the humility not to be such people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My title this morning is pretty simple. God the Savior is also God the Judge. It's not a very popular concept these days, but it's foundational to all that God declares in His Word from cover to cover. Whatever remains of, uh, of any tolerance for the God of the Bible within our culture, our society as a whole, is built largely on the belief that God is Himself exceedingly tolerant. Tolerance is the watchword of the culture when it comes to talking about God. That belief necessarily denies the Bible and remakes God. In other words, it's not the God of the Bible that the world is tolerating. It's the God that they've contrived to replace the God of the Bible. To the extent that the world still acknowledges Jesus Christ as a good person, it sees his goodness as grounded in an uncritical love that overwhelms and overshadows every other thing that is true of Jesus. It paints him as far too loving ever to turn away from a person just because that, that person doesn't comply with some moral standard that religious people choose to call righteousness. At least, not unless we're talking about really terrible kinds of behaviors. Those who hold to this this understanding of Jesus would generally agree that he would call murder sin, he would call rape sin, he'd call robbery sin, unless, unless one of those behaviors was the result of something outside of the person's control, like being abused when he was a child or being part of a group that has been so victimized by another group for so long that it gives that it gives him the right to return the favor but of course many of those same people insist that Jesus would never call premarital sex sin he'd never call homosexual sex sin he'd never call it sin to do what your heart tells you is good and right even if that deviates from what the bible says and of course, this view of Jesus also insists that he's too loving and too tolerant not to allow for many paths to God. He would never condemn someone for choosing whatever God that person wants to worship, so long as he or she does so with good intentions. Just have faith in someone or something. But the simple, unavoidable truth is that those who, treats God, who treat God's gracious revelation of His will and His ways in such arrogant disregard 
do not have good intentions toward God. They are on the side of the mortal enemies of God, whether they intend to be or not. The only way for humans to replace the clearly revealed truth about God and man with their own clever-sounding lies is to first declare the truth to be a lie. You can't replace God's truth with a human contrivance unless you're declaring God's truth to be a human contrivance and then declaring that your contrivance is superior to that other one. So the world, along with many who identify themselves as Christians, declare that it is Christians who have been so terribly wrong in their understanding of God's Word when it comes to labeling certain behaviors as sins. They've been wrong for thousands of years. But finally, we have a generation of human beings that's morally and intellectually sharp enough to replace all those generations of intolerant theology with the truth that God always actually intended for men to believe. Make no mistake, friends, the intentions of those who have thus remade the God of the Bible into a rubber stamp God who is happy to let them choose their own truth and their own morality the intentions of those people toward God are not good intentions. They're the same rebellious, God-despising intentions that have existed ever since Adam and Eve replaced the truth of God with a lie that they found more attractive. As the world has refined its elaborate lie about what God must be like and about what behavior God must endorse, it has shoved the overwhelming proof that God's Word is true right under the rug while insisting that the truth about God that He has clearly revealed to His people was made up by men or adjusted by men rather than revealed by God. So when the world encounters a verse like John 14, 6, where Jesus declared to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, or when they encounter a verse like Acts 4, 12, where Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. The world simply declares that such statements were added by fanatical followers of Jesus in an effort to fortify the Christian position. How does God respond to this increasingly popular approach to His Word? Well, the way He responds is exactly the way that He presents Himself in the Bible as responding. He is unfazed, untouched, unchanged. The religious authorities in Jesus' day called him a liar and a blasphemer. But Jesus didn't come to react to men. He came to act in order to save men. Jesus never once 
changed or even slightly adjusted any assertion that he or any of the prophets who came before him had ever made about God and about sinful men. Not one single word. The first thing we need to know about how God responds to man's assertion that his word is not true is that God is unchanged and God's word is unchanged. There's one other thing, one other thing that we humans need to know about God's response to those who replace his revealed truth with their own carefully contrived lie and then who call the truth a lie in order to do so. And that other thing that we need to know is that God is angered. God is angered. Do we know what that means? Do we know what happens when God is angered? Well, if we don't, these, these last chapters of Jeremiah will help us understand. And what we find here is that the writer of Hebrews got it exactly right when he said it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Last Sunday, I mentioned that Jeremiah 46 verse 1 is a preview of all of chapters 46 through 51. That verse says, that which came as the word of Yahweh to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. God has now moved away from his address to Judah, to Israel and Judah, his covenant people, and now he's talking about the nations, the pagan nations. As we saw in God's word to the first of those, those nations, Egypt in chapter 46, the word that God gave to Jeremiah is a word of fierce judgment. Fierce judgment. Judgment that will take place on earth precisely because God is not tolerant of sin. Not even a little. In chapter 46, verse 10, God referred to the day of his judgment against Egypt like this. He said, For that day belongs to the Lord God of armies, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his enemies, and the sword will devour and be satiated, and will drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord, God of armies, in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. How tolerant is that God? Beloved, that is the God of the Bible from cover to cover and from eternity to eternity. In Exodus 34, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, God hid his glory. First, he put Moses in the cleft of a rock and passed by in front of him. But as, as he passed by, God hid his physical glory from Moses so that Moses wouldn't drop dead on the spot. But as he passed in front of Moses, God declared, declared to Moses the glory of his character. And here's what God said of himself. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast covenant love and truth, 
who keeps loving kindness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. But then comes the other part of the declaration. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Earlier, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God clarified that last part. He said that he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. Those who hate him. And who are those who hate God? Those who exchange the truth of God for a lie and who worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. That's Romans chapter 1. It's a little piece of verses 18 to 24. In chapters 47 to 49 that we're considering this morning in Jeremiah, God extends the prophecy of His day of vengeance from Egypt to nine other nations. Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, and Elam. In chapters 50 and 51, we'll see next Sunday that God will further extend the prophecy of his coming fierce judgment to the nation that he used as his chosen instrument to judge a bunch of those other nations. And that, that nation that served as his instrument of judgment is Babylon. Babylon will be judged as well. And we're not going to walk through every paragraph of chapters 47 to 49 in sequence. Instead, we're going to look at common threads in these chapters. We're going to see that the sins that bring these harsh judgments from God's hand are very much the same essential sins from one nation to the next. And they're sins that have always been around. But we'll also see that the outcome is not the same for every nation. So, why is God going to judge these nations harshly? What sins will bring the fierce vengeance of God against entire nations of people? Well, the one foundational sin that shows up over and over in these chapters is pride. God's oracles against these nations uh, early on go to Moab and Ammon. Moab and Ammon. Now, Moab and Ammon were distant cousins to Israel. They were descended from the two sons of Abraham's nephew, Lot, whose family God had rescued from his own wrathful destruction of Sodom, which was the morally bankrupt and godless city in which Lot had settled. In chapter 48, after declaring the coming of great calamity, devastation, and destruction upon Moab from his hand, God then gives the reason for his destructive judgment. Verse 7, chapter 48, he says, But the judgment is because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures. Because of your trust in your own achievements and treasures. And then immediately he says, And Chemosh will go off into exile 
together with his priests and his princes. Who's Chemosh? And what's he doing in a verse that's talking about Moab's trust in their own accomplishments and treasures? Well, Chemosh was the god of Moab, the god that all the way back, way back in the days of Moses, uh, the Moabites had offered their own children as sacrifices to this god called Chemosh. So were the Moabites trusting in themselves or were they trusting in Chemosh? And God's answer is yes. <laughs> By trusting in a god that they had made for themselves, they were trusting in themselves. See, idol worship is really nothing more than self-worship with props. Back in Jeremiah chapter 10, God declared that the false gods that Israel and Judah had embraced from the godless nations around them, including their cousins Moab and Ammon, were the work, quote, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They had to be fastened with nails and hammers so they wouldn't fall down. They had to be carried around because they couldn't walk. God pointed out there in chapter 10 that the gods that men made for themselves are unable to speak and that they're unable to do either harm or good. He says, why would anyone fear them? Why do people create such ridiculous gods? The answer in every case is arrogance against the one true God. Pride. Men create false gods because they are unwilling to be accountable to the true God. So they make gods that will let them do what they want to do. There's a reason that in Romans 1, the first image in the list of images that men used as templates for their man-made God, gods is the image of man. It's self-worship with props. In Jeremiah 48, verse 26, God says to Moab, Make him drunk, for he has become arrogant toward Yahweh. So Moab will wallow in his vomit, and he will also become a laughingstock. In verse 42 of that same chapter, God says, Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward Yahweh. In verse 29 of the same chapter, says, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. We have heard of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, his self-exaltation. How many ways can you say pride? Many years earlier through the prophet Isaiah, God pronounced a strikingly similar indictment of Moab in Isaiah 16, verse 6. He said, we have heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. <laughs> How many ways can you say that Moab's sin was the sin of pride, of arrogance against the one true God? Now, please don't miss this, beloved. Pride in self is always 
always directed against God. Pride in self is an abomination toward God, to God, because it is, it is an arrogance toward God. Let me say it again since I messed it up. Pride toward self is an abomination to God because it is fundamentally arrogance against God. Our pride cannot be in ourselves and in God at the same time, ever. One of those always cancels out the other. God's indictments against the other nations in these chapters are along the very same lines. The sin of the nations always comes back to prideful self-exaltation and self-trust that is the shaking of man's fist against God. In chapter 49, verse 4, God says of Ammon, O backsliding daughter who trusts in her treasures, who says, Who will come against me? <laughs> Ammon's response to God's warnings of judgment was to say, in effect, Oh, yeah? Look at what we've accomplished. Look at the treasures that we've gotten for ourselves. Who are you, Yahweh, to declare that you can undo what we have done? We're not scared of you. In chapter 49, verse 16, God says to Edom, a nation that was known for its mountain strongholds, as for the terror of you, in other words, as for the, the fear that you've created in other nations, fear of you, the arrogance of your heart, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there declares Yahweh. How did all these nations get so full of themselves that they had no place for the God who made them? Even nations like Moab and Ammon that had begun with strong ties to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, Jeremiah 48 tells us how they got so full of themselves Here's the surest way for a nation or a person to become so prideful that he has no place for God. Jeremiah 48, verse 11. Moab has been at ease since his youth. He has also been undisturbed, like wine on its dregs, and he has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile. Therefore, he retains his flavor and his aroma has not changed. The surest way for anyone, whether it's a nation or a person, to fall into the conviction that he is the master of his own well-being is for his life to go smoothly for a long time. Are we hearing this, beloved? In his oracle of judgment against the city-states of Kador and Hazor in chapter 49, God instructs Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, 
to act once again as God's own judgment, a God's own instrument, his agent to execute his judgment against those peoples, just as Nebuchadnezzar had acted as God's agent in judging his own people, Judah. God says to Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 49, 31, Arise, go up against a nation which is at ease, which lives securely, declares the Lord. It has no gates or bars. They dwell alone. In addition to great wealth in the form of many camels and a multitude of cattle, Kador and Hazor, like Moab, had lived in ease. They had never experienced any great threat to their security. Kador and Hazor didn't even see a need to build walls around their cities, almost certainly because they had strong alliances with other powerful nations that did have walls around their cities, nations like Moab and Ammon and Edom. The lives of the people in Kador and Hazor had been lives of ease, lives filled with the illusion of security. They were fat and happy. Friends, you do not want that description ever to apply to you. Just read Psalm 73 and you'll see where fat and happy ends up. You and I should pray often and earnestly that God will shut down every episode of anything that looks like successful self-dependence. That he will shut down every episode of of successful self-dependence while the duration of such an episode is still short and not long. Unless you're a fool who cares nothing about God's honor or your own well-being, you do not want a smooth life. And you definitely do not want God to store up anger against you. It's an exceedingly bad idea to press the limits of God's forbearance over a long period of time. Those who do so do not fare well when God reaches the end of his forbearance. Which of these two scenarios is better? The daily difficulty of being lovingly disciplined by your heavenly Father? with a discipline that quickly brings you back to the path of life every single time you begin to drift off that path, or the devastating reversal of course that happens when God breaks you of a deeply entrenched habit of sin after years of your refusal to respond to his daily discipline or to appreciate his forbearance. Which of those is better? I hope the answer is blatantly obvious to all of us. Make no mistake, beloved, our God is a consuming fire. No one will prevail against him. No one will get his own way when his way is not God's way. No one. 
If it looks like somebody is getting his own way while he's turning his back on God, you can be certain that the longer that goes on, the worse it's going to be for that person when God's forbearance ends. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Which is better? The times when it's obvious that you control nothing about your well-being and that God controls everything, or the times when it looks to you like you control pretty much everything? God already answered that question very directly all the way back in the second chapter of Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah 2, verses 1 through 3. Jeremiah writes, Now the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Yahweh, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. Israel was holy to Yahweh, the first of his harvest, all who ate of that harvest became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares Yahweh. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, there is a stark contrast that we've seen many times between God's dealings with His, His people, Israel and Judah, and His dealings with the godless nations around them. That difference is foundational to understanding what our Master is doing in our lives and in the lives of others. God told Israel straight up that the time when their relationship with Him was the most right, the time when they were in fact most secure, was the time when God was leading them every step of the way and they had no option but to follow Him the time during the 40 years that they lived in the wilderness after he redeemed them out of Egypt and before, before he brought them into the land of promise. Beloved, think about this for a minute. Israel was a nation born in exile, not in prosperity. That should tell us something. It was during 400 years of harsh slavery in Egypt that God multiplied their number from 70 people to a couple of million people. And the time when God says it was most well between Him and them was the very time when they were so utterly dependent on God that they would have died in mere days in a scorching desert if He had not provided every single thing that they needed bread from heaven, water from rocks, protection from enemies on every side when they didn't have a sword or a shield to their name. That was when God says it was most well with Israel. And that's because our greatest well-being is found in our greatest dependence on and trust in God. And why is that? because God made us for himself. 
I've said this many times during this series. When we come to understand the purity and power of that declaration that God made us for himself, that will explain a million things that happen to us in our lives. Why does God bring you and me through times of wilderness and hunger? Times when our efforts to lay hold of what we see as well-being, our efforts to secure for ourselves the earthly provision and protection that we consider indispensable, don't succeed? Why does God bring us through such times? Because he made us for himself. He created us for absolute dependence on and trust in him. And that's where our well-being exists. Listen to what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 8 at the end of Israel's 40 years of wilderness wanderings, just before he brought them into the land of promise. This is, again, from Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 2. You shall remember, Israel, all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry, and he fed you manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. And then listen to verse 5. This is beautiful. Thus you are to know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Just as a man disciplines his son. Beloved, these are the things that our good father does. And his fatherly discipline is a treasure to us, not a curse. It is good and gracious for God to break us of our pride and our own accomplishments, of our trust in the work of our own hands. It is good and gracious because the work of our hands can never make it well with our souls. God alone does that. The wellness, the shalom, the peace that God created for us to know is entirely a function of our relationship with him. Nothing else enters into that picture ever. It's good and gracious for God to show us the futility of trusting in or exalting anything or anyone but him so that he may become all that we trust and exalt. That's when we will know true well-being. When we're counting on or boasting in anything or anyone other than God, we are in desperate need of his corrective judgment. Do you ever think of that way, beloved, uh, of things that way? Do you crave the correction that restores you to the path of life and blessing, or do you spend your life trying to dodge that correction? Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline, it's talking about godly discipline, loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof 
is stupid. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Proverbs 15.32 says, He who neglects discipline, God's discipline, despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. He who neglects discipline despises himself. In these concluding chapters of Jeremiah, God speaks to the nations around Israel and Judah that had accosted and assailed Israel and Judah for generation after generation and that had sought to consume Israel and Judah into their own godless cultures. Nations that had taught Israel and Judah to worship their false gods while they themselves dwelled in ease in what they believed to be an untouchable security of their own making. To those fat and happy nations that had, as they saw it, so long been successful in their arrogance against God, God now says, the day of my vengeance has come. Not every judgment of God against these nations ended up the same way. They did not all have the same outcome. In Jeremiah 46, 26, at the end of his prophecy of severe judgment against Egypt, God said, Afterward, however, Egypt will be inhabited as in the days of old. Now God adds four other nations to that promise, to the promise of his restoration. And those nations are Moab, Ammon, and Elam. After God declares harsh judgments against them, he also declares that he will restore them. In chapter 48, 47, God says, Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares Yahweh. In chapter 49, verse 6, he says, But afterward I will restore the, fortune of the son, fortunes of the sons of Ammon, declares Yahweh. In chapter 49, verse 39, he says, But it will come about in the last days that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares Yahweh. No such promise of restoration is given to Edom, Damascus, Kador, or Hazor. According to chapter 49, verse 18, the conclusion for Edom is this. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah with its neighbors, says the Lord, no one will live there, nor will a son of man reside in it. It will be turned into a desolation. So why this huge difference in the outcome for one nation as opposed to another, when all of them had persisted for very long in casting off the one true God? Why is one nation judged and restored while another nation is judged and destroyed? Well, if you go back to Jeremiah chapter 12, you find God's answer. Jeremiah 12, verses 14 through 17. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my wicked neighbors who strike at the inheritance 
with which I have endowed my people Israel. Behold, I am about to uproot them from their land and will uproot the house of Judah from among them. And it will come about that after I have uprooted them, I will again have compassion on them and I will bring them back, each one to his own inheritance and each to his own land. Then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be built up in the midst of my people. But if they will not listen, then I will uproot that nation, uproot and destroy it, declares Yahweh. The two outcomes were connected with two responses to the chastising judgment of God, to the correction of God. Even when that correction came after decades or even generations of rebellion against God, all that a nation needed to do to receive the promise of restoration was to respond to God's correction by turning to God by swearing by his name instead of the names of their false gods that they made in their own image. But for every nation that would not listen, all that remains for them is destruction. The only gods that most of humanity tolerates in any age are the rubber stamp gods that they have constructed to validate their own whims and agendas and to affirm their own self-importance. Gods that can't talk back because they can't speak. Gods that will never require or deserve more praise than men give to themselves. Gods that certainly can't and won't overturn what people have accomplished. The God who is is as different from those man-made gods as light is from darkness. The God who is calls all men everywhere to repent, turning away from every element of self-trust and self-exaltation in order to turn humbly with empty hands to the living God who alone is the source of every good thing and every perfect gift. Those who do turn to him by trusting in his son enter into union with Christ that is the sum total of real life and real well-being now and for all eternity. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. But make no mistake, God will not allow the sin of any nation or of any person to go unpunished. That is fundamental to the very character of God. God will not allow the sin of any nation or of any person to go unpunished. 
Either you will refuse to trust in Jesus and you will bear upon yourself the eternal punishment that you deserve from the hand of God, or you will trust in Jesus, knowing that the eternal punishment that was due to you already fell on him when he died in your place and was raised for the de- from the dead. Those, those are the only two options. Either your eternal debt will fall on you or it will have already fallen on Christ if you are among those who trust in him. There's no third option. Jesus is the only way that any person will escape the judgment that every one of us fully deserves. If you put your trust in him, in him alone, you will never bear any part of the eternal punishment that you deserve from the hand of God. The punishment, the painful correction that you absolutely will receive from God will be the constant, loving, daily discipline of your perfect Heavenly Father as He graciously works to impart to you the peaceful fruit of righteousness and to make you share in His holiness. That's how it works for us who trust in the living God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a wealth of blessing it is for us to be able to call you that. Our Heavenly Father, you are all our good. You are all our good. Whatever it takes for you to humble our prideful hearts so that we come to acknowledge that simple truth and to live in it day by day, we ask you to do knowing that you promised that that's exactly what you do in the lives and hearts of your children. We ask that you would use us to call all men everywhere to turn from self-trust and self-exaltation to fall on their knees before the living God, trusting in your Son alone to save them, to bring them to you, in whom alone are all that is real life and real well-being. We ask this in the name of our glorious Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.